Welcome to the podcast brought to you by Division 22 Science Committee in collaboration with Rehabilitation Psychology, the journal of Division 22. I'm Stephen Wegener, the editor of the journal. In each of these podcasts, we will highlight one article from a recent issue of the journal. This will allow readers to gain additional insight and information as they talk to the author online. In this podcast, we feature an article from our May 2015 issue, Defining Treatment Targets and Active Ingredients of Rehabilitation, Implications for Rehabilitation Psychology, by Drs. Tessa Hart and Dawn Eady. Joining our discussion is Dr. Tessa Hart from the Moss Rehabilitation Research Institute, where she serves as Director of the Traumatic Brain Injury Clinical Research Laboratory and Director of the Moss Traumatic Brain Injury Model System. Welcome, Dr. Hart. Thank you very much, Steve. Dr. Hart, why do you think it's so critical to develop approaches to measure the process of rehabilitation? Well, I think it's, um, I think rehabilitation is, is different from many other medical fields in the sense that our treatments are, are most of our treatments are, are complex. We rely a lot on behavioral treatments more so than passive treatments like, uh, like in other branches of medicine that, that tend to rely more on medications and surgeries and things like that. We also have a, an incredibly diverse array of populations that we work with and many different settings. And we work on goals with patients that go all the way from uh, organ function uh, to participation in using the terminology of the ICF. So what we do is complicated and I think our treatments have been harder to measure than, uh, than in some other fields. So it's not really a surprise that measurement of rehabilitation treatment has lagged behind um, the way that we measure person factors, um, in other words, characteristics of the person who enters rehabilitation, demographics, the level of disability, the types of deficits, and so on. Um, and, and treatment measurement has also lagged behind outcome measurement. We have a huge array, in fact, <laughs> too many, some would say, of instruments for measuring um, outcomes of rehabilitation in various domains. So, um, so we have, but we haven't advanced very far in measuring treatment. And to, to get to your question, I think it's important to measure rehabilitation so that, very simply put, we can find out what treatments or what tr components of what treatments works best, work best, and work best for which kinds of patients and which kinds of problems. Uh, we really don't have that, that precision in our evidence base, and we can't really advance our evidence base uh, until we have a, way, a better way to measure rehabilitation treatments. And before we can measure rehabilitation treatments, we need better ways to define them and to, to specify the treatments that we use more precisely, because you can't really measure something that you can't define. And right now we have a very, we have very loose ways of, of defining and labeling what we do in treatment such that uh, two treatments might actually be very similar, but, but they could be called different things. Conversely, two treatments might be very different, but they might have the same name, like transfer training or memory training, something like that. I, I think the other uh, big reason why it's important to advance in this in this way is that rehabilitation is a team enterprise, and um, 
better ways of measuring uh, treatment and, and defining treatment and talking about treatment will only enhance communication across the, the team. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hart. So for those who maybe haven't read the article yet, maybe you could give us a brief overview of the taxonomy that you and Dr. Edie propose for uh, classifying or understanding or defining these rehabilitation processes and treatments. Sure. Well, we don't really have a taxonomy yet. That's, that's kind of what we set out to do at the beginning of the project that was funded by NIDER about five years, six years ago now. Um, we discovered that it was not possible to create a taxonomy in the classical sense of a Linnaean taxonomy of plants and animals. Um, but that's what we try to organize the treatments that we um, do in rehabilitation, and, and that means everybody, not just rehabilitation psychologists, into um, groupings that are different, uh, mutually exclusive and different along three dimensions that we think are important. And those three dimensions are the target, uh, which is the specific change that you're trying to enact um, in rehabilitation. And uh, tar the target is always measurable. It's something like speed of walking or um, uh, mood, which is measurable. Um, that's one that's one of the, the aspects. Another is the ingredients. Ingredients are the specific things that the uh, treater does to try to affect changes in the target, and those are also measurable, at least in principle. It's anything that the clinician says, does, implements, selects, and so on, uh, and delivers to the patient. And then the third aspect is the mechanism of action. Um, this is how the ingredients make the changes in the target. And notably, the mechanism of action is often invisible, but we still have it at least as a hypothesized way in which ingredients that you deliver helps your patient change in a specific way. So um, the, the groupings that we think are mutually exclusive uh, along these three aspects, these are not actually discussed in the paper, but I'll mention them briefly, and I'll highlight the ones that are the most important for rehabilitation psychology. So one grouping is um, simply the targets have to do with structural tissue properties. So these are, these are passive treatments having to do with stretching tendons and so forth, and we as psychologists don't do those, I don't think. Um, the second grouping is um, <clears throat> designed to change organ functions, input-output dynamics of organ functions. So um, aerobic exercise is a kind of classic uh, treatment that belongs in this category. Um, deep brain stimulation would also belong here because it, it's, uh, it's designed to change the, the function of the brain as an organ. The third grouping is a very large category of treatments that we call that we call skilled performances, and these are uh, these account for really the majority of active treatments in rehabilitation. They require volition on the part of the patient, so gait training, dressing training, ADL training, vocational rehab, anything that requires the person to do something and practice something. Uh, often with coaching from the clinician, falls in that category. It's a very large category. And then the fourth grouping 
um, is one where the targets are knowledge, um, trying to change the knowledge base of the patient and or the attitudes and emotional reactions of the patient. So uh, cognition and affect are not separated in this category because at the state of the science, we didn't really know how to do that. But um, this grouping would include uh, lots of the work that we do as psychologists, including adjustment counseling and uh, talking therapies, um, as well as patient education that's done by multiple fields, uh, multiple disciplines, sorry. Um, Thinking about, even though we didn't get very far in breaking apart these four groupings, that's proven very hard to do, the, the idea of, of um, classifying and defining and specifying treatment um, does advance the field, or we hope that it will advance the field by just encouraging uh, everyone, clinicians and researchers, to think more specifically about what targets they're pursuing when they treat think more specifically about how to measure those targets so they can really tell whether their treatments are effective. And then, you know, think, just think more clearly about what ingredients might be worth using in attempting to um, make even more changes in the targets. Great. So maybe you could give us an example, maybe a rehabilitation psychology example of, of a target, an ingredient, and a mechanism of action that might link, come together ac across these different dimensions. Thinking about, for instance, and this is an example I think that I wrote about in the article, um, a rehab psychologist might be involved in, in teaching a patient how to use a compensatory memory strategy. Let's say a, a planner, something to keep appointments in. So um, the target might be, or one target might be, um, improving the patient's ability to you know, spontaneously take out the book and write down an appointment when an appointment is mentioned. Um, that's a really specific use of the, the notebook. So you notice that the target isn't expressed as improving memory because it's really not improving memory it, in the head. It's improving the ability to do a specific thing with a specific object. So that might be a target. The ingredients that might be um, applied here might include um, how the how the the patient is um, taught to use the book. So we might talk about a schedule of practice as an ingredient. It's it's a quantitative. We call it a, a dosing parameter. Actually, how many times and under what conditions are you going to have the person practice this activity until it becomes automatic? That's an example of an ingredient that you might want to think about in order to make this activity automatic. <clears throat> um, other ingredients might be modeling um, how to use the book. So you demonstrate for the person how, how to find the right spot in the book and how to write the appointment. Um, interestingly, you would cross into the knowledge and attitude category with a different target if the patient happened to be resistant to using a book, then you'd want to uh, give information about how important it is, that it's not odd, it's normal to use a book. You might be trying to change the attitude of the person toward using a book. That's a different target, and it involves different ingredients, mostly didactic and factual, persuasive kinds of ingredients that you deliver verbally as opposed to in practice. And how about the mechanism of action? How do you think about the mechanism of action in, in the example you're giving of the improving the use of the memory book? This is where we run into trouble with 
with these particular groupings, the skill performances and the knowledge and attitude groupings. We really don't have um, clear definitions of the mechanisms of action, aside from saying, for example, that skill performances, including using a, a notebook, are, um, you know, they're improved through implicit learning mechanisms. And knowledge and attitudes are changed through, um, you know, changing uh, semantic no- networks in the brain or by via certain kinds of information processing. Well, those are incredibly vague definitions of mechanisms of action. The, the truth is that's really the best we can do with these treatments that rely on learning and information processing. We, ca- we can't really specify what's going on in the brain. So in these cases, uh, and that's in contrast, by the way, to some of the some of the more you know some of the treatments that are more focused not on performance and and information, but on on tissue properties. So you know you can say that if you stretch somebody's tendon, the mechanism of action is the the stretch the you know the intrinsic property of the tendon that stretches when you apply mechanical energy to it. That's pretty obvious. Uh, the mechanism of action of a drug. You can't see that directly either, but you often know it from laboratory studies. So you can say certain neurotransmitters are released from the synapse, and that, that's a known mechanism. But when it relies on learning and, and memory or the ch- a change in how you process information, you're kind of stuck with just saying that, and you infer the mechanism by looking at the relationship between the ingredients and the, and the target, the change in the target. So, Dr. Hart, as you know, uh, Dr. Keith uh, Cicerone from the JFK Johnson Rehab Institute wrote a very nice commentary on the paper that's in the same issue that I direct the readers to. Uh, first of all, commenting on the high quality of your your and Dr. Edie's work, but also raising some interesting questions. And one of the things he raised was the idea of how difficult it is to distinguish between these active ingredients and the mechanism of action. And I was thinking about my own work where we teach people certain kinds of uh, pain management skills and we hypothesize that um, in the teaching of the skills, we hope to see a rise in their self-efficacy around pain management, which we then think relates to greater use of those skills. You know, maybe you could approach that example from this uh, active ingredients mechanism of action and, and see how that one lays out. Yeah, I think that's a great example, actually. Um, first, a general comment about the difference. It, it is very difficult to keep these things in mind, straight in mind, especially when they're sort of new. And the the I think the best distinction between them is one that I mentioned a little earlier, that ingredients are things that the clinician does, and they're, they're measurable. Um, in principle, they're measurable. So even if it's a talking therapy, somebody could, in principle, measure every word and every concept that's taught and every intonation and every gesture and all, all, all those things that are selected by the clinician and delivered to affect change are, are measurable in, in principle. But the mechanisms of action don't necessarily need to be. So I think that's, I think that's uh, one distinction that helps just kind of keep in mind. Mechanisms, uh, I'm sorry, active ingredients are under your control mechanisms of action are put into play, you hope, and are often hypothesized to be put into play by the ingredients that you select. That's helpful. 
Yeah, and the example of self-efficacy is really interesting because I know that that's been cited in, in many studies as one of the mechanisms by which self-management works to affect changes in health outcomes. And, um, you know, it's very possible that self-efficacy is one of those mediating uh, variables that is its own mechanism of action um, and can be triggered by certain kinds of training, reinforcement, experience of success, and so on. You can also think about it as a target in its own right if you are actually trying to improve self-efficacy and measuring it along the way. Then you can think about it as a target, but you can think, it, you can think about it as a target that's more proximal to the one that you really want to achieve which is improved health outcomes, which would be an aim that you hope self-efficacy would help the person to attain. Right, I see. So it can be seen kind of as a primary outcome where a health change or a health outcome change may be seen as a secondary outcome, depending on how you might uh, configure your study. That's very interesting. Exactly. And uh, in the, the terminology that we use in the work we've done so far is for the secondary outcome, which is da- sort of downstream from the target. We use we use the term aim. Um, and so, for example, if you strengthen somebody's quadriceps muscle, you hope that they'll walk better. But that's an aim. The target is really strengthening in the muscle. So you can see uh, you could see a treatment that's really um, directly focused on self-efficacy and, and with ingredients that are really intended to improve self-efficacy with the aim of downstream effects on the person taking more responsibility for their health. So, Dr. Hart, as you reflect on this uh, work, what do you see as the takeaway message for the practitioners in our audience? Well, I think the takeaway messages have to do with thinking more, I guess, more clearly or more specifically about the, the operationally measured targets that you're, that you're trying to change and the ingredients that will help to change them. And it's interesting that the clinicians who have been in our work group, the work group that has worked for the last six years or so on this project, have told us that exposure to the concepts alone, of course, they've been thinking very deeply about them, but the exposure to the concepts has helped them to think that in, a way, in a more focused and targeted way about their treatments when they're treating their patients. So we've included people who are both clinicians and researchers in our groups, and they say that they really start thinking differently about what they're doing. They start thinking, what are, what are the targets that I'm really shooting for here? How, how will I tell whether my patient is changing in these particular ways that I'm going for? And what are the ways that I could, if, if they're not changing in the ways that I want to see, how could I adapt my treatment to use different ingredients to make a bigger change? The other way I would answer your question, though, Steve, is to say that um, we want input from clinicians at this point in our work. We, we have uh, exhausted the NIDR funding, and we, but we have a new grant from PCORI to continue this work, and under that grant, we have scheduled a number of um, teleconferences with clinicians in all different rehabilitation disciplines, including psychology, to give us input on these concepts and to to really give us I- more better ideas about what the what the clinical implications are. Very good. You know, I'm re- reminded that a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of the influence of our behavioral. Uh, 
ancestors who talked about being much more clear in terms of what our targets are to make sure that they're specific and measurable. And I think a lot of your work brings a lot of that to mind for me. So uh, thank you, uh, Tessa, for taking time to speak with us. I also want to thank Dr. Lisa Brenner and the entire science committee for their leadership on this podcast project. Um, and to Mr. Joe Huggins for technical support. Uh, please give us feedback through the Division 22 Science Committee uh, for other ideas to help us improve and communicate our scientific findings better to our Division 22 colleagues. Take care.